midst of this tumultuous landscape that defines American politics, with the very essence of democracy hanging in a precarious balance, a singular organization has emerged as a beacon of resilience against the forces threatening to undermine the bedrock of our nation. The genesis of this endeavor traces back to its inception in December 2019, initiated by astute former Republican strategists who discerned the looming specter of Trumpism. Their mission, twofold significance, first achieved its zenith by toppling Donald Trump at the polls in 2020. Yet the second facet of their mission remained of paramount importance, the resolute determination to ensure that Trumpism's shadow withers into obscurity. They cogently assert that their true battle against Trumpism is but in its nascent stages, a fight inextricably linked to the very survival of our democracy. For above all else, the Lincoln Project stands unwaveringly as champions of democracy itself. Now, as our gaze shifts to the high stakes theater of contemporary American politics, we find ourselves on the cusp of yet another momentous juncture. The contenders for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination are poised for a head-on collision in the impending GOP presidential debate. Set against the backdrop of the iconic Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, on the evening of Wednesday, September 27, 9 p.m., this forthcoming debate portends a showdown of unparalleled proportions. Following the heated exchanges witnessed in the previous month's debate held in Milwaukee, the candidates are steeling themselves for another round of impassioned deliberations. However, a unique twist graces this occasion. Heightened qualification thresholds for the contenders, introducing an element of rigor and looming large as the unspoken presence, the former president, Donald Trump, is once again expected to abstain from participating, casting his unmistakable shadow over the event. As the specter of a government shutdown draws near, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy finds himself under fire from fellow Republicans for what they perceive as a failure to guide his party through the tumultuous situation. Amidst the unfolding drama surrounding the presidential debate where six contenders have successfully secured their positions and the unfolding drama on Capitol Hill with a government shutdown looming, it's essential to revisit the backdrop against which this selection process has played out. To even qualify for a shot at the debate, candidates faced rigorous criteria, mandating a minimum of 3% support in two national polls, or alternatively, 3% in one national poll and 3% in two polls conducted within the early nominating states. Today, I'm so honored and glad to be joined by Republican political strategist and award-winning political ad creator and co-founder of the Lincoln Project, Rick Wilson. Mr. Wilson, thank you for being a part of the political mic. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for having me. You don't have to call me Mr. I work for a living. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rick, with the 2024 presidential candidates gearing up for yet another debate, it seems mm -hmm. like a showdown is on the horizon. Do you think that the former president's decision to skip the event has made it increasingly difficult for the GOP to set up an anti-Trump candidate? Look, there was never a really a pathway for an anti-Trump candidate, given the characteristics of the MAGA base. They want their Trumpism served straight. No ice, no salt, no nothing. They want it right up. And so you have two clusters of candidates inside the current primary field. You have the ones who are never going to be electable, who are averred anti-Trumpers, uh, Will Hurd, Asa Hutchison, Chris Christie. They will never get more than you know, on the national basis, two or 3% of the Republican vote in the primary. Um, you have the soft wannabe sort of pseudo Trumpers, um, which is Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. And you have the couple that are imitating Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis. The rest are just noise. Now, none of those people provide MAGA voters with a sufficient reason to abandon Trump. None of them have made a compelling enough case to abandon Donald Trump and what they get from him, which is this 
feeling of connection to something that permits them to be as angry and ugly as they want to be, to be the worst versions of themselves. And so there's never been a real path for them, even if they had all come together in a room somewhere and said, okay, it's going to be you, Chris Christie, or you, Ron DeSantis. The candidates themselves could never make a compelling case that would move the MAGA base. It moved donors uh, for Ron DeSantis and donors for Chris Christie and donors for Nikki Haley and donors for Tim Scott, but it, donors and the MAGA base have been diverging for years now. And so there's no real there's no real persuasive argument that any of these candidates has made to say I'm the one you need to replace Trump with because they don't believe in them and they and they want Trump back. Rick, the Lincoln Project has undertaken the task of creating new ads that support President Biden's re-election. The first ad, American Story, commends President Biden's leadership and celebrates his achievements. I'm going to go ahead and play sure. the clip right now. Decades of leadership, a lifetime of experience, and rock-solid determination to rebuild America. Joe Biden's plan for America's economic comeback is working. The highest job growth on the world, inflation coming down faster than any other major nation. And prices families pay for everything from gas to groceries falling fast. Hope and optimism coming back. His tireless work to build a stronger America means we're respected again. And a respected America is a safer America. Joe Biden's years have taught him leadership, wisdom, toughness, how to ignore the noise and focus on the people. He's a president for every American, making the hard decisions with compassion, heart, and respect. That's Joe Biden, America's president. Rick, the president currently is 19 points underwater in yep. poll for his ratings of, for handling the economy. Yep. A recent poll showed Trump actually on top of President Biden, actually coming out at 51 over 42 in a head-to-head matchup. Biden's polling is even more dim when you look at younger voters. As the Lincoln Project continues to try to make an appeal for, quote-unquote, ban-in-line voters, persuadable Republican swing voters, how does it also seek to tell the story in a more compelling way for folks who may not be as hard right as a, quote-unquote, ban-in voter, but are just not sold on the idea that this is the president? that they think should handle well, this. Look, we're going to make this case. And again, Bannon line voters, uh, for people that don't know what they, what they, what, what, how we describe them, they are soft Republican voters who are more affluent, more educated, more suburban. They, these are the kind of people who uh, aesthetically have a problem with Donald Trump. They don't want their kids to behave like Donald Trump. They, they don't like the cruelty, the conspiracy theories, the threats, the bluster, um, all those things. Um, that that have really troubled them for a long time. And they are persuadable on a number of issues. They're not progressives. They're not leftists. They're not liberals. They are moderate conservatives. Now, other Bannon line voters include independent-leaning men uh, and a few other clusters and cohorts that, you know, for, for the purpose of this discussion, aren't terribly important. But these are not far, far right people um, in terms of the of the political spectrum as we understand it in America today. They were center-right by in, in every other election. They were the core of the Mitt Romney demographic, the core of the George W. Bush and George H.W. Bush demographic. The party has become older, less educated, um, and, and less able to process the nuance of, of the, the, the conspiracy theories and the false information that they're being fed 
by Fox and the Trump campaign. So we're trying to make sure that the people that aren't in that category um, are able to see a, a set of messages that will and let them either A, feel like they have permission to vote for Biden because he's going to do a more a, a more credible job on the economy than Trump, or B, uh, feel like that they can stay home and not pull a ballot in the presidential line, vote however you want down the, down the ticket, but just don't vote for Donald Trump. Um, we call it the flip it or skip it strategy. My partner, Reed Galen, named it that. And our communication with them now is because no one else is talking to them. No one else is trying to, 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 to give them affirmative information about Biden in this space. The campaign, the Biden campaign is running a $25 million ad campaign. It's based on getting their, their base back, the Democratic base locked into line, which they should do, no doubt about it. We have a different set of mission criteria, different set of targets, and so that's what we're pursuing with this. And as we go forward, we'll move from a stage where we're reinforcing the Biden positives on the economic and foreign policy fronts. And as we go in the next year, as Trump is the nominee again, we'll get back into what we're really, really good at, which is fighting Trump one-on-one, -on -one, setting the narrative, getting inside Trump's head, making him do stupid things, um, and, and giving the Biden campaign space and time to build, to get momentum, and to fight this election out at the scale and scope that is going to be necessary in another Trump versus Biden matchup. The inclusion of Univision as a debate broadcaster suggests a focus on Hispanic voters. Sure. How crucial will the Hispanic vote be in the upcoming election, in your view, and which candidates might benefit from this outreach? Look, right now, the Hispanic vote is going to make a gigantic difference. Um, and I'm going to bifurcate the Hispanic audience into two groups. Um, well, let's call it the west of the Mississippi Hispanic audience, which is primarily going to be more Mexican. Um, and in places like Nevada and Arizona, they're going to play a huge role in this election. Those states are going to be very close. It's going to require a lot of attention from Biden and his allies because the Trump campaign is working very hard on those audiences in those states. East of the Mississippi, you have four big cohorts of Hispanic voters in the country right now. Um, they are in Florida and New Jersey, Cuban-Americans, Puerto Rican-Americans. Uh, in Florida, Venezuelans, in North Carolina, Mexicans, Cubans, and Puerto Ricans, and various admixtures. So you're going to see in those four states, Hispanic voters are going to play a very big role um, in this coming election. Uh, especially Florida, North Carolina, and Georgia, where the Hispanic population is growing enormously. In Florida, um, there is a possibility we could have a better outcome for Biden with Puerto Rican voters this time around. I think they're really doing the work with the Puerto Rican voters. Um, and they have a lot of work to do with Cuban and Venezuelan voters who have been convinced by a very large information warfare campaign that Joe Biden is Fidel Castro without the beard and the funny, the funny outfit. So um, Hispanic voters are going to play an enormous role. Both sides are going to be fighting hard for them. The Republicans have made inroads with Hispanic males, and it's important for the Biden campaign to recognize, understand, and counter-program on that. The last debate saw a rise in the polls for Vivek Ramaswamy, someone who is not in the world of politics at all, someone who thrust himself in the middle of this, similar to how Donald Trump thrust himself in 2015, and he's finding himself benefiting from a bump in the polls from those who like to see an outsider in the race. If the goal of the Lincoln Project is to prevent not just Trump, but Trumpism from rearing its ugly head again in the Republican Party, how does it prevent figures who are not well-versed in the Constitution, not well-versed in the limits of 
constitutional power and authority, whether it be for Congress or the presidency, from being able to offer themselves as a candidate and see a meteoric rise in the polls as a result of their novelty of being an outsider. Well, Ramaswamy is, like many of these folks, going to have his 15 minutes of fame. Um, I don't think he poses a meaningful challenge in the long haul to Donald Trump. Um, he seems to be from what I call the entertainment wing of the Republican Party. Um, and, and, and look, that wing of the party um, will end up with Vivek Ramaswamy having a show on Fox or being a presence on the, on, the, on the political stage for a little while longer. But he doesn't have the capability or the capacity, either financially or politically, to organize a real national campaign. And so I, 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 you're right that there's a certain appeal to the transgressive that he uh, puts out there, but I don't think he's really got the juice to pull this thing off. And of course, Ron DeSantis was once considered a front runner, the alternative for Absolutely. many donors. Now he's facing challenges in maintaining his support and maintaining his position in second place. Last poll I saw, he was around 42 points behind Donald Trump, around 16% nationally. Uh, right. What did he need to do? If you were his consultant, what would you advise him to do? Quit. This Quit right now. He's already gone past the level where he's going to benefit from run, having run the campaign. Um, and in most cases, um, he's falling. Look, Ron DeSantis, a year ago, polling against Donald Trump, Donald Trump was in the low 50s and Ron DeSantis was in the mid 30s. Now Donald Trump is in the mid to high 50s and Ron DeSantis is in the teens to single digit, low teens to single digits. It's over for Ron DeSantis. It's, it, we're done now. There's not going to be a Ron DeSantis presidency. Um, he may do well in Iowa. He may do well in South Carolina, but it's not going to beat Trump. And, and if I were DeSantis, I'm a, he's a young man. He's got plenty of time to get out uh, and plenty of time to reboot, um, to reboot himself for, for a, future, um, a future run. You and I, countless others have examined, dived into, lamented about Donald Trump's character, his mm -hmm. his venality, his corruption, viciousness, calling for General Milley's execution being the latest example. Right. What about his followers? How do we explain the fact that tens of millions of our fellow Americans, 35% to 45% of the Republicans, are devoted to and enthralled by this man? And what does that say about the character of our country? We exist in an era of post-ideological political parties in large degree, especially on the right. Um, and Donald Trump is explained by three late large trends in society, the celebrification of everything. And Donald Trump spent 14 years in the living rooms of millions of Americans in a very successful, highly rated television show where they believed he was a brilliant executive who made strong decisions and was a billionaire who was beyond the reach of any influence in the world. Those crafted images on a TV show shaped what people thought, and they loved the celebrity part of Trump. The second reason that Trump's hold is, is forever with the MAGA base is that he offers them the ability to be their worst selves. He offers them the chance to say whatever they want, do whatever they want, and when they're criticized for it, they get to beat their chest and say, oh, you're trying to cancel me. You're trying to suppress me. You're trying to you're, you're trying to look down on me because you're an elite. And the long culture of oppression fostered by the GOP in its own base of telling affluent suburban white voters, you're the one who's got it rough. And those Mexicans 
who come across the border and those African-Americans who go to your kids' schools, they're the ones making your life hard. Those people were very receptive to that message and they, they, they wired it into their brains. And the, and the final pillar of that really is the social media and Fox media infrastructure. You had Rush Limbaugh in the 80s and 90s redefine that oppositional defiant disorder culture in the Republican Party. Fox put it on steroids, grew that audience dramatically. And then when social media came along, it became this self-reinforcing loop, this hermetically sealed bubble of information and uh, and belief that that led to Trump and that has, has kept that hold that Trump has over the base intact. Even when Fox has criticized Trump or tried to get away from him, the financial incentives of keeping their audience have outweighed the incentives of telling the truth about who he is. Going back to the Lincoln Project's efforts in key battleground states, could you shed some light on the significance of Wisconsin and the upcoming election? Sure. Wisconsin will be one of the closest run states in the country. We've seen it over and over again. It has now become the purple state. Um, it is it is a it is a state where it's very, very difficult for anyone to walk in confidently and say, I'm gonna take this one, it's gonna be, I'm gonna put this one in the bag. Um, there will be a lot of work to be done there. In 2022, the Lincoln Project was very successful at motivating two separate groups in Wisconsin to come out and vote in the governor's race, which is what our focus was. Um, we knew the Senate race was probably a foregone conclusion. So we focused on the governor's race because the governor will have a lot of power when the 2024 election happens. Um, and, and we've got to make sure that we didn't have somebody who was going to just rubber stamp a Trump claim the election was stolen. So the two groups we really hit there um, were younger voters who we don't normally end up speaking to a lot, but we talked to younger voters there uh, about three big things. One was individual liberty and freedom, which is an argument uh, made about choice and Dobbs without having to go down the rabbit hole of abortion because these younger voters get it. The, the Republican Party isn't the party of limited government. It's the party of unlimited government. It wants to control every aspect of their lives. And so that was the first argument. Then we made an argument to Republican-leaning voters about Ukraine, many of whom are um, what we call democracy dads or Red Dawn dads. They're Generation X and older millennials who grew up understanding what Russia and the Soviet Union was. We did a bunch of ads about Ukraine that talked to that audience. And it really helped close up Wisconsin. It is not an easy state for anybody to win. Joe Biden's going to have work to do there. And Donald Trump's going to have work to do there. We're going to be spending a lot of our time at Lincoln uh, working on Wisconsin issues and Wisconsin campaign ads because we see that as one of the top two or three states in the in the country alongside of Pennsylvania and Arizona. The debate this Wednesday, as I mentioned earlier, will be taking place at the Reagan Presidential Library. Yep. Now, the Reagan Foundation's speaker series, A Time for Choosing, aimed to provide reasoned intellectual discussion on the future of the Republican Party. However, Good Trump, luck. <laughs> Trump antagonists like Liz Cheney and Ben Sass were featured, while Trump himself was not invited. What message does this send about the direction some Republicans want to take the party? There is a small... But I think important, I, I think meaningful uh, faction who are still in the Republican Party. Look, I am still a conservative, but I am not a Republican. I believe in the Constitution. I believe that the state and, and government should treat people with respect and dignity. Um, I believe that markets should be largely free. Um, and I believe that America should be guided by the Constitution. There are still some Republicans who believe that too. Um, people like Liz Cheney, people like Adam Kinzinger, 
people like Ben Sass, um, people like Denver Riggleman, uh, Barbara Comstock, you know, a number of these folks who are, who are no longer in power, no longer in Congress or, or the Senate, uh, and Mitt Romney, who's leaving the Senate, who still believe in this country, you still believe in our in, in, in a set of conservative principles, but look, they matter insofar as it keeps people, it gives people a place to rally around and to sort of uh, engage with. They don't matter insofar as, you know, you could sit all of us around a table in a Waffle House pretty much. There just aren't that many of us who still hold the old, as I like to say, we're the last priests of a dying religion. Um, the, the, the Trumpian base is not driven by conservatism. It's driven by a love of authoritarianism and a cult-like devotion to Trump. So we obviously, and I think the Reagan people are, and I haven't talked to anybody out there in, in the recent months or year, like the last year or so, but I think that people want to keep Reagan's legacy alive, which wasn't a more optimistic, inclusive version of, of the Republican Party. I mean, let's remember Ronald Reagan passed the biggest immigration reform in the last 50 years. And and he did not believe in the closed door of America. He believed in the shining city on the hill and a bigger dream that was more inclusive. So I think they want to keep the Republican and Reagan branding as much as they can, um, even though, you know, it's a light in the darkness, at the, a candle in the darkness at this point. I asked this question to Chris Matthews when he was on a couple of weeks ago, and I want to ask you, is Nikki Haley the answer to the prayers of GOP donors who are looking for that great white hope against Trump? Look, I think Nikki's going to perform well in New Hampshire, uh, maybe maybe surprise some people in New Hampshire, um, but she's still going to come in second in her home state. And and after that, she does not have a pathway beyond that. I think Nikki is a uh, B plus A minus candidate. She's not she's not terrible. There she's she's better than a lot of the people in the field, but she's still boxed on. She can't offer voters who don't like Trump in the Republican primary base, even though it's a small number. She can't offer them anything, um, and she can't give the MAGA voters enough of what they want. So she's sort of in a in a weird no man's land uh, when it comes to the Republican uh, primary electorate. Speaking of no man's land, it seems as if Chris Christie is putting all his chips on the table in New Hampshire. Good uh, luck. <laughs> he, of course, told Kristen Welker, the new host of Meet the Press, he said it's about momentum. And he alluded to Biden's unlikely rise to the nomination in 2020. Do you think that he has a point there? Do you think that he has some hope there as the sole person trying to make the, the case against Donald Trump and Trumpism himself? If Chris Christie breaks 20% in New Hampshire, I'll be shocked. Okay. He's just not going to do it. He may do, he may do, he may rattle Trump a little bit, but at the end of the day, the minute New Hampshire is over, Chris Christie goes into the Super Tuesday states in South Carolina and he's going to get wrecked in those states. I'm glad he's doing what he's doing. I'm glad he's speaking the truth at last. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to Chris Christie for speaking the truth at long last about Trump. But I don't forget that he was Trump's go-to guy for the Sunday shows for the four years of Trump's administration, a relentless defender of Donald Trump, when a lot of the things he now criticizes Trump for were things he was aware of while he was being Trump's biggest defender. So I, I think Chris Christie will, will end up underperforming you know, anywhere but New Hampshire, Again, he doesn't have a path to victory in this in this current climate. How does Lincoln Project plan to promote Biden amidst the threat of seems to be going to be a, a three way race if the no labels party jumps into this? Look, we, we've been very clear about no labels from the beginning. 
it's funded by Republicans. It's run by Republicans um, at the at the staff level and the consultant level. Um, it's it's Chairman Pat McCrory. His consultant is Chris Lasavita, who is also Donald Trump's consultant in his presidential race. Um, they're they're raising their money from people like Harlan Crow, who of course funds Clarence Thomas's lifestyle. They're raising money from Republican, from DeSantis and Trump donors. They are there to split the vote. They cannot win. There's no path to victory. They can't get to 270, no matter what. Um, but they can split the vote in key states like Arizona. Uh, they can split the vote in key states like Virginia and Wisconsin. And if they do that, Donald Trump will be reelected. That is their plan. That is their intention. They can lie about it all they want, but we know the truth about it. And their own polling proves our case. It proves they can't win. And it proves that they are going to take more votes away from Biden than Trump. Nothing in their nothing in their in their feel good sunshine, you know, blowing smoke up your ass philosophy of where the nice guys, where the centrist is true. It is all a pro-Trump super PAC. That is all it is. And and the sooner people understand that and get away from the idea that that these people are centrists in some way, the better. Why is Manchin the person that's going to be taking the mantle for this movement, the, the the guy who symbolizes the obstruction of what could have been the Democratic Party's sure. agenda being enacted. He got in the way of the Build Back Better legislation. And, and then he also upset McConnell and Republicans by deciding to go ahead with Chuck Schumer and allowing the Inflation Reduction Act to pass in the summer of 2022. Right. Uh, he seems to have alienated people on both sides of the aisle. Why does he think that he's the person that's going to be able to generate and galvanize support for an independent movement? He's not, frankly. What he is, is a conservative Democrat. That is why No Labels wants him on the ticket as their nominee. As a conservative Democrat, they know he will pull voters away from Joe Biden. And, and look, you should, think of, you should think of No Labels as sort of the anti-Lincoln project. They're trying to pull Democrats away from Joe Biden. We're trying to pull Republicans away from Donald Trump. They're going to elect, if they if they put Joe Manchin as their nominee, he will go out there to Arizona and out there to Pennsylvania, and he will beat his chest and he will stomp up and down and say, I'm looking for conservative Democrats to join me. And look, about 15% of the Democratic Party outside of the coastal cities and and and, and metropoli are more conservative than the Democratic Party establishment and and the democratic mainstream these are people who tend to be broadly speaking a little more religious uh, a little more pro-gun uh, a little more a little more pro-business and that's where joe manchin will focus his efforts um he will go after those people and and split them from trump um in a very clear way yeah. so i think it's i think it's I think it's important that we um, that we keep Joe Manchin in mind for who he is. And I will say this about the Lincoln Project. Um, the sort of work we do in advertising, messaging, communications, um, and, and the sort of people we are, we're, we're a bunch of, of you know, look, we're not going to always be invited to the garden parties because we like to kick the hell out of bad guys. My researchers spent 10 minutes not even digging in hard on Joe Manchin, and I can write 20 ads that will take the bark off this guy 
like nobody's business. We're going to, if we have to go after him, we go after him. Uh, we prefer to fight the real battle, which is against Donald Trump. But if no labels is empowering Trump, we're going to focus on ensuring that no labels doesn't have a clear shot uh, with those audiences. So going back to this debate coming up, do you think that this is all a big waste of time uh, that Trump is going to be? Yeah, of course. Regardless. And this is just I've said this. I've said this before, Mike. And I, and you can't make a horse race out of horse manure. You just can't. It does, there, there's there's nothing. There's nothing in this primary that is so compelling that it's changing the minds of MAGA voters. Since the primary has become more engaged and reporters have been covering it, what has happened to Trump's numbers? They've gone up. You know, again, Ron DeSantis was in the mid-30s against Trump a year, year and a half ago, and now he's in the low teens to single digits. None of these things that are happening in the Republican primary space as MAGA voters pay more attention are redounding to the benefit of the sub-tier candidates. If they wanted to call this the, the vice presidential primary, they should have. That's why Nikki Haley is in the running. That's why Tim Scott is in the running. Um, and that's why Vivek Ramaswamy is in the running. They think that they can't win, but they could be VP if they kiss Trump's ass enough. They might be right. But it is not. It is, it is, it is a lack of focus on what's really happening in the primary and the belief that, that we can make a horse race out of nothing uh, on the part of the media. And all of this hand-wringing about Biden's age and calls for him to drop Harris from the ticket and calls for folks like Gavin Newsom to get involved. You have Representative Phillips considering challenging the president. Now, I've always said the last time the Democrats challenged the incumbent in the White House, you have to go back to 1980. And Ted Kennedy versus Carter did not work out for them. And nope. the same way that Pat Buchanan and George H.W. Bush, my old boss, George H.W. Bush, got right. primaried by Pat Buchanan. When H.W.'s numbers, Buchanan got in the race when when Bush 41 still had a 68 percent approval rating. And and it and it bled the sense of unity and support out of the party. It it led to endless questions. It led to Ross Perot getting in there as a third party. I mean, right now we kind of feel like history is repeating itself a little bit in some ways um, in a terrible kind of way. Um, but you know, look, we're going to have um, we're going to have a a hard moment for Joe Biden if if um, any of these guys get in the race. I don't think I think Gavin Newsom understands that he needs to wait his turn. Uh, I don't think Phillips does understand that. I think Phillips is being pushed by a lot of people to do this. Um, but here's the thing. All Phillips can do is guarantee that Joe Biden has a rougher nomination process. He can't win. RFK can't win. All they can do is make a lot of noise um, that harms the president in the in the race against Trump. And if this were a race against a, if Trump had dropped dead last year and it was any random Republican, then you'd say, okay, we should have a more vibrant sort of thing. Right now, you can't take risks with the future of the American Republic and of, and of representative democracy in this country. You can't take risks by having anybody that's going to bleed down any amount of the Democratic Party support for Joe Biden. Because if you do, in a closely run, a closely run race, in an electoral college system that divides the country in a way that advantages the Republicans kind of meaningfully, you will end up with Trump as president again. So anybody cheerleading for a Biden challenger is cheerleading for Donald Trump. Yeah. The government, it's 
seems to be hurtling towards another shutdown and House Republicans are brandishing the threat of impeaching President Biden, despite some within their own ranks questioning the evidence. What's your take on the high stakes political turmoil? And, and can you shed some light on how it might impact the Republican Party electorally and going forward beyond 2024? The traditional wisdom is that shutdowns harm the party that brings them about. That wisdom has the advantage of being true. I don't necessarily know if that is going to cause as much of a cataclysm this time around for the Republicans, um, because a lot of the country mistakenly believes that the shutdown is good politics and good economics. It's terrible economics. Um, inside the GOP base, though, they're not driven by economics or philosophy or, or policy. They're driven by showmanship and anger and conspiracy um, and, and how you get yourself on Fox News that night. And so I think that there's a degree of shutdown politics that will hurt the House members that bring it about. Uh, it will cause more division for McCarthy, more dissension inside the Republican ranks who generally support McCarthy, but who are in kind of a tough spot right now because they know Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene have the whip hand. Um, it'll hurt McCarthy. It'll hurt the GOP candidates for Congress. It won't necessarily change the ball game between Trump and Biden. McCarthy's recent move toward an impeachment inquiry has failed to quell the hard right rebellion within his party. How do you perceive this internal GOP drama and what consequences might it have for any kind of semblance of unity? That's something we predicted about a year and a half ago that we said, even if Kevin McCarthy got the speakership, he'd never really be the speaker. And he's not. Uh, Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, the whole lunatic caucus has a lot more power than Kevin. Kevin can't set the agenda. He can't set what bills are going to come and be passed out of the, out of Congress. If he makes a deal with the Democrats, he loses his speakership. And Kevin, there's nothing, nothing in this world more important to Kevin McCarthy than that speakership. You could he, You could kill his dog in front of him. If he gets to keep the speakership, he keeps the speakership. The dog dies. This is a guy who is desperate for a continuation of the security around him, the portrait on the wall, and the fancy office. Um, and so he'll do what it takes to keep his job. And what it takes right now is to give in to the MAGA horde and let them burn the economy down. You have some GOP leaders in the House considering a short-term funding patch with border security provisions and spending cuts. Do you think that this approach would be beneficial to avoid a government shutdown or, or, and do you think it could be the bridge between the gap between them? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it will be because I think the intention of, of the, of the, the chaos caucus with Matt Gates and company um, is to bring the shutdown. They want the shutdown. They believe it has a political benefit for them. Um, so I don't think that they're, that the logic of trying to do the, to the short-term spending package, even with some cuts, that they still may not be able to pass it. Those guys may still sit it out. And they want McCarthy to suffer. They want him to fail. They want the government to shut down. Um, and, and so I think it's very difficult for a compromise to come through here. And again, unless McCarthy is willing to make a deal with Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrats can and should just say, it's your majority. Take it or leave it. With the Biden impeachment inquiry formalizing divisions within the GOP on its duration and outcome, what's your prediction for how this might play out and what are the potential repercussions for both parties? Will this make Trump look better? Being that 
Trump had impeachment inquiries that resulted in two impeachments. Yeah, the thing about Trump was he was criming all the time. And the thing about Biden is this is just a made up farrago of nonsense for the most part. Um, they don't have witnesses. They don't have evidence. They don't have facts. Every time they come out with a smoking gun, it turns out to be a water pistol. It's just not they're just not there. Um, and so you're going to see this at primarily to motivate the Republican base. Uh, you see this so that the Republican base can offset the messages about Trump's criminality and all of his various legal cases. Um, and I don't think it's going to really make much of a difference in the long haul. You know, 2024 is unprecedented for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is that you're going to have a former president running for a non-consecutive term who has 91 criminal charges swirling over his head, and he's going to be in and out of courtrooms. Do you think Trump eventually goes to jail? No. I think people who are betting on Trump being in jail are, are making a fool's bet. Um, three reasons. One, don't think these cases are open and shut because they're not. The Mar-a-Lago documents case is being tried in a county about 62% of the voters in that county voted for Donald Trump. If you don't think a MAGA voter will sandbag the jury, you are mistaken. He'll get at least acquitted or may, may get acquitted, may get a mistrial. That's not going to that's not going to go well. That is a very conservative county, a very conservative jury pool, a very conservative judge who owes Donald Trump her career. Don't think that these cases are easy. Secondly, the Georgia case is going to be long and messy. Um, but no matter what happens there, he will be on appeal for years and years and years. Even if he's found guilty, he'll go out. They'll, they will appeal this forever. So Donald Trump is not going to be in jail in November of 2024. It's not happening. And people need to adjust themselves and, and understand that there's no shortcuts to beating Trump. There's no easy path to beating Trump. He has to be beaten by being beaten, not by imagining that we're somehow going to have, you know, deus ex Jack Smith reaching down and changing the fate of America. Um and the reason he's running is to is to stay out of jail. Yeah. Um, and and it's just it's just a it's just an absolute um, imperative that people treat this realistically. Yeah. A lot of people I hear a lot of people on the Democratic side and even on the never Trump side. Oh, don't worry, Trump will be in prison. No, he won't. Grow up, people. He has the devil's luck. He's got a billion lawyers. He's going to have as much money as he needs to defend himself because of his his base will fund it. And it's going to take forever. One of the reasons we're doing a shutdown, by the way, is because Matt Gates wants to say to Donald Trump, hey, I shut down the DOJ for you for six weeks or three weeks or two days. All of this has an impact. And it's all wired together in a sort of ball of interactive and interconnected and coordinating sets of interests inside the Republican world. Yeah. Turning to a different topic, Senator Bob Menendez, of course, is facing serious bribery charges. How do you think these allegations will impact the Democratic Party's image, especially as they gear up for 2024? The Democratic caucus should remove Bob Menendez right now. This is not the first time he's been in legal trouble that would have killed most other candidates. Listen, Mitch McConnell has the majority. You will not lose the majority because Bob Menendez is gone. He will be replaced by another Democratic official. It's New Jersey. This is the simplest no-brainer in the world. I don't understand for one second why Chuck Schumer has not come down on this guy's head with a billion tons of bricks and said, 
You will never get another appropriation. You will never get another committee chair. You will never be included in the caucus meetings. You are cut off. You are done. It is over. Go screw yourself, you criminal. And if you get acquitted, come back and see me. But for now, Democrats need to understand that corruption is the killer app. It's one of the ways we split MAGA voters away from Trump. Those never Trump voters, one of the reasons is they know he's corrupt. They don't like it. Voters don't like corruption. It is a way to win races that you might not otherwise win. Get smart, Democrats. Get rid of him. He's got to go. He's got to go now. And Schumer should be public. He should be out there beating the drum on this guy every day. He should be out there telling people, absolutely not. He should be calling Menendez's major donors and making them get their money back. This is an easy lift, and it shocks me that we're not already seeing it happening. How do you think this would play out in public opinion as Republicans continue to assert that there's a two-tier justice system as it pertains to the Hunter Biden case? Well, call me crazy, but the Justice Department seems to have um, charged Hunter Biden in the last few days um, and has has dropped these indictments on Bob Menendez. So clearly, there's a two-tier justice system, and it involves non-criminals and criminals. And the criminals are getting whacked, and the non-criminals are not. Call me crazy. You know, I've always said Democrats hold themselves to a, a totally different standard. When you go back to even 2017, when there sure. were allegations against Senator Al Franken, immediately mm-hmm. you had leadership in the Senate calling for his resignation. You have now representatives, yep. you have Sen- Senator Fetterman calling for the resignation of Mendendez. And, and yet the public still seems to not be able to differentiate and see that there is a huge difference between Democrats and Republicans when it comes down to corruption. Why do you think that? And if you leave this, the long, every day you leave him in office, is another day the Republicans will go, see, see, he's they're the corrupt ones. They're the ones who are the, he's got gold bars under his bed and you didn't care, but you're trying to go after the innocent Donald Trump. It's stupid politics not to absolutely drag him out of the building right now. I mean, it, I, 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 I find it bordering on political malpractice that they have not whacked this guy politically yet. Mitt Romney's revelations about his fellow Republicans' private opinions on Donald Trump are quite sure. extraordinary. How do you think these behind-the-scenes dynamics might impact the GOP's future and its stance on Trumpism? They don't, they don't shock me. I've been having these conversations with Republican elected officials since 2015. They hate him as a rule. Well, in the Senate, they hate him as a rule. There are a dozen people in the Senate who are MAGAs or are Trumpers. There are a dozen others in the Senate who are uh, opportunists. Um, and the rest of them in some admixture of the of, of both those groups, pretty much loathe Donald Trump. They believe that the words they are forced to utter about him are false. They know them to be false. And Mitt Romney's finally telling people what, what's real here and what's really happening. And, and Republican elected officials, more than anything else in the world, they want to keep their jobs. They want to stay in office. They are willing to make every compromise under the sun to keep political power. And that should tell you a lot about their their lack of a sort of moral center on these things, because the fact of the matter is, you know, we've got a Republican Party that tolerated a guy and tolerates to this day a guy who ordered an attack on the U.S. Capitol because he was unhappy about the results of of a free and fair election. So. A lot of the senators that day who were on the floor, they were upset that the building was being invaded and that there was an attack underway. But a lot of them were sitting there going, ah, let's see how this plays out. Let's see what happens. 
because I will I will tell you if Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or Mike Lee or Rick Scott or Tommy Tuberville or Cindy Hyde Smith or any of a number of these other people had their way, they would have used that they would have used that attack as an excuse to stop the the certification of the election, throw it into chaos and uncertainty, and and roll the dice to see if they could find a way to make Trump president. That was what was happening that day. And if Democrats don't understand, they're not dealing with their old friends who they used to fight with about marginal tax rates or how many parts per billion of carbon were going to be in the atmosphere. They're dealing with people who are willing to burn the country down for Donald Trump. They're dealing with people who are willing to destroy the American system of government for Donald Trump. And they should be more realistic about what they're facing. Going back to the inability for Republicans to hold their members accountable to the same degree that Democrats hold their members, the excerpt from Romney's biography suggests that some Republicans believe Trump was guilty, but they're afraid to speak out. How do you see this fear factor affecting the party's ability to hold its members accountable? In the biography, it says McConnell said they nailed him to Romney as he passed. Caught off guard, Romney tried to be diplomatic and responded along party lines. Well, the defense will say that Trump was just investigating corruption by the Bidens, he told McConnell. It's, 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 I mean, look, <laughs> it's utter garbage at every degree, level, and, and specificity. I mean, there's just nothing there. Um, it, 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 to, to, you can't make, you can't square that circle. Let's put it that way. I mean, look, one of the things that, that our politics includes today is a big dose of the absurd. And so when you hear those sort of accusations and claims, it's tempting to try to argue them down and fix them and find a way to make them work, but you can't, you just can't, you can't indulge that kind of madness. You can't indulge that kind of behavior. If you do, you end up empowering the people who are willing to say and do anything to hold office. Because look, it, it, it'll go to, oh, Biden's not just corrupt. He's a cannibal. Biden kills puppies. You know, they're, all the craziness that you think, oh, that's absurd, for them it's not absurd. And if it doesn't get punched back hard over and over and over again, and not just a, don't just try to fact check and counter and, and counter it, you have to go and say, no, actually, no, you're not only just wrong, you're insane. You're not only just wrong, you're not even in the argument. You're not even wrong, you're just a liar. I mean, people have been unwilling to call Trump and Republicans who empower him liars for a long time. And it's liberating to be able to do so because that's what they're doing. You know, Mitch McConnell's alleged comment to Romney was intriguing. What's your take on the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, his mindset during that time? And how does it reflect the GOP's internal dynamics? Well, McConnell was drawn between two poles. January 6th, he understood what Trump had done. The night of January 6th and January 7th, all of his political money people went to him and said, we'll, we won't have money. We will have Trump trying to kill us. His chief strategist, a guy named Josh Holmes, said, if we can just harness Trump's base of rural, low-education voters, um, you know, we'll be good forever. We'll have a governing majority forever. I'm misquoting it slightly, but it, you, know, you can look it up. That idea led McConnell the next day or a day or two later to basically kill the impeachment vote in the Senate. And if he had impeached Donald Trump in the Senate and it passed, it would have passed, by the way, it only needed 12 Republicans and you had the votes, Donald Trump would be ineligible to run. He'd be off the scene. He'd be out of the picture. So McConnell, for all of his skill as a leader in the, in the machinations of the U.S. Senate, 
when it came time to pull the to pull the lever the right direction, he wouldn't do it because he was afraid of losing power and money from the MAGA base. And look, they raise about 75% of their money from small dollar MAGA donors. So every email that goes out from a Senate candidate, like I'm going to back the Trump agenda, Trump, Trump, Trump. If Trump had said, no, you can't do that anymore. It would have killed their fundraising and, and would have put McConnell in a very bad position in terms of, of control in the Senate. So they made a compromise. And, you know, you keep making compromises one after another, after another, after another, after another. And it hollows you out and it hurts. It destroys you in the end. I had a really, really close friend who was a consultant I'd known for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And we split in 2015. We went two different directions. He hates Trump, hates him with the fire of a billion suns, can't stand it. But he goes out and says, Trump is the best thing since prepared mustard. His farts smell like elderberries and flowers and sunshine. He's the greatest president of all time. And his excuse is, yeah, I got to pay the mortgage. I got kids in college. I got, I got people working for me. What am I going to do? But he hates himself. He's gained 45 pounds. He's a staggering alcoholic. He's miserable. I get it. But you can't keep compromising with evil over and over again and hope your life is going to go on. It won't be the same life you thought you had. And McConnell made that mistake. And look, he's he's going to end his career in the Senate on a, on a sad and diminished note. Um, and he was one of the great leaders of the U.S. Senate of all time as an operational political figure. And you, you know who told me that? Harry Reid. Mm. He said to me one time, McConnell could do more in the minority than a lot of people that I know could do in the majority. Wow. He is a very skillful Senate majority leader or minority leader. Probably the best since, since LBJ. Yeah. Um, and he, he could have had that power to change the direction of the country very fundamentally and chose not to. It's sad. Romney also suggested that a significant portion of his party doesn't truly believe in the Constitution. Can you elaborate on this assertion and what it means for the Republican Party's identity? Sure, sure. you see it every day. You see these people out there saying we're going to undo the 14th Amendment. We're going to undo uh, you know, the, the libel protections in the First Amendment. We're going to undo you know, women's right to vote. And by the way, they're not joking when they say that. They're, not, they're like, ha, 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 we're trolling. They mean it. They want to burn down the Constitution because it has too many impediments in it for their desire to hold authoritarian power. Yeah. And, and that should scare the hell out of people. It, it should scare the hell out of people, but it frankly doesn't, not to the degree it ought to. Both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are heading to Michigan to join the UAW picket lines and stand yep. with auto workers during their strike against the big three automakers. How do you see this high profile involvement of both presidents impacting the labor movement? and the broader political landscape. I think Joe Biden's been the first president in my lifetime who has been assertively engaged on building the labor movement. Other Democratic presidents sort of made good noises about it, but beyond ask me, they didn't really care. Joe Biden has a long connection in his life to that sort of working class, middle class union worker who builds things, who works with their hands on a production line. Those folks have a lot of emotional resonance to him, and I think he has a lot of emotional resonance to them. They get it. Trump is closer to them culturally. Biden is closer to them economically. I think Biden going to stand in the picket line is going to be a big deal. It's going to bring a lot of visibility to the case and pressure. Trump has been told he's unwelcome on the line. 
We'll see what happens. I think the rank and file might want Trump on the line more than the leadership does. But I think on net, it'll be a very good positive for Joe Biden. And finally, Mr. Wilson, you know, you have a lot of young people who say that they're not inspired by Joe Biden. They point to the fact that they've got huge student loan debt that they thought would be re reduced significantly by now. They look at the realm of climate change and they say, well, the Inflation Reduction Act was great, but it was a start. The Justice 40 initiative was great, but it was a start. They look at the fact that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act didn't make it out of the House of Representatives and into the, into the Senate in 2022. What is your message to them as to why they need to still remain engaged and motivated to the same levels in 2020 when there was turnout that was comparable to that of 2008? Sure. The key message here is that in the fullness of time and maturity in politics, you will learn not to make the best the enemy of the good. And right now, if you think you're going to get a better deal on climate or a better deal on student loans or a better deal on the economy with Donald Trump than Joe Biden, and you think that that's worth sitting home over, you're out of your goddamn mind. This is a nation that is not as progressive as progressives would like it to, be to believe it is. Because of the Electoral College map, you have got to let Joe Biden work the areas he can work and work on the areas he, he can't work on yet in a second term where he doesn't have to run for re-election. The choice here is not, am I going to get what I, everything I want on student loans tomorrow or everything I want on climate tomorrow or everything I want on choice tomorrow? The choice is, do you want to live in a country where Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and Betsy DeVos decide every aspect of your life? Or do you want to live in a country where Joe Biden has to go out and sell these things, has to go out and work hard to make these things happen, has to fight against Republican courts and Republican le legislative obstruction? But you will at least have a fighter instead of somebody who's going to try to stamp the boot in your face for a billion years. So that's that's my it's some tough love. But whining about this stuff and complaining Joe Biden didn't give you enough presents at Christmas versus Donald Trump, who is going to give you nothing but coal in your stocking, maybe literally coal, um, is, is foolish. It's immature. It's jejun. It's foolish. And it needs to stop. People need to get behind Joe Biden, because I will tell you one thing. Most Republicans will be behind Trump sooner than most Democrats are behind Joe Biden. And if they don't reverse that trend right now on the Democratic side, we're in deep trouble. Well, Mr. Wilson, this was one of my best, my, my, my favorite episodes of the Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you so much. You great questions, man. Thoroughly really terrific. I want to really keep terrific. an open invitation for you to come back. Time keep in touch, time. man. Keep in touch. We'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. Right. Thanks, thank you Mike. So much. Have a great day. All right, sir. All right. That would conclude episode 120 of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Hi, it's Mike Taylor, the host of the Political Mike podcast. If you like what you heard tonight, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I also want to ask you to please follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Amazon Music. You can also follow along and keep up with the conversation through our Telegram channel. Follow us on Twitter at, at ThePolyMike.
and follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much, and no matter what part of the political spectrum that you fall on, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, stay a part of the conversation, and stay informed. Thank you.